0: Exodus 23, verses 10 to 19. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work so that your ox and your donkey may rest and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time, in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in your crops from the field. Three times a year all the men are to appear, appear before the Sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me, along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk.
1: Let's just pray before we come to God's Word Almighty God and most merciful Father, we come with an attitude before you this day of desiring to submit to your wonderful word. We pray that the seed of your word may be sown in us today, such that it may take such a deep root that Satan cannot snatch it away, that the burning heat of persecution would not cause it to wither, nor would the thorny cares of this life choke it. But we pray that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60 or 100 folds, according to your perfect wisdom. Amen. 99 years ago, in 1924, Eric Little was preparing to compete in the Paris Olympic Games. He was due... To run in the 100-meter sprint. But Eric withdrew from that category a few months before the games and instead trained for the 400-meter race. Now, if you knew Eric, you knew that his 100-meter time and his 100 meters was the best distance for him. That was his distance. He ran that distance very well. And so his decision to change distance didn't make sense to so many who looked on. Unless you knew that Eric was a committed Christian and he had never run on Sundays. And the reason he changed was because the 100-meter heats were going to happen on the Lord's Day. His precious saviour, mattered more to him than anything else in the world, including a chance at a gold medal. And his commitment to the Lord's Day reflected that. We live in days when our practice as Christians to gather to worship God together on the Lord's Day is pretty uniform. But our theology of the Lord's Day... Well, one writer described it as all over the road. If you want to find out just how varied different people's understanding of the Lord's Day might be, just start asking some questions. Why do we worship today? Is it a matter of tradition or convenience or principle, biblically? Is this day different to any other day? Or are all days the same? Why do we come and worship together as God's people on a Sunday? Why not do it on a Saturday evening? And then we could use Sundays for shopping and sports and and duvet days. Or for catching up on homework, housework or box sets. The subject we're going to look at this morning is the Lord's Day. What our confession of faith describes as the Christian Sabbath. And our aim this morning, with God's help, is to do two things. I want us to see that there is a biblical grounding to the principle of meeting as God's people today and honoring this day as the Lord's day or the Christian Sabbath. And then. I'd like us to think about some ways and encourage one another in some ways that we might better honor this day as the Lord's Day, the day that our good God has made for our good. I'm going to address a question this morning, and the question is this Why is the Sabbath a good gift from God? Why is the Lord's Day? a good gift from God. And we're going to see five reasons why it is. And then between our fourth and our fifth, we're going to go on a little excursion to ask the question, why Sunday and no longer Saturday? So let's begin in our first point and asking this question, why is the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, a good gift from God? And we see first of all, that it is a good gift because it means you can rest you turn your Bibles to Exodus 23 and you look down at verse 12, we read these words. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. So there we read in the scriptures that on the sixth day, we are, six days we are to do our work. On the seventh day, we are to do, we are to not work. Now, the Hebrew word behind that word "do not work" is the word Sabbath, which actually is a positive thing, and so it's more helpful, as I think the ESV translates it, to say we are to rest. So literally, it's saying there, verse six, but on the seventh day, rest commanded to rest. Now, we know, and we see there in verse 12, that that God commands us to work as well, but he commands us to work on the other six days. That's exactly the wording of the fourth commandment, which includes a commandment to work for six days and to rest on the seventh day. And to work is not necessarily six days of employed work in whatever you do for a living, But rather, six days of meaningful labor and activity, doing what God has given us to do with the strength that He has given us for Him. But on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, we are commanded to rest. We are commanded not to do what we may do on other days, and instead to give ourselves to rest. Now that takes a lot of hard work for six days, doesn't it? (laughs) It takes hard work and discipline for six days through the week so that we are freeing ourselves from the need to work on the seventh day. And it also takes, and this is something that has struck me more and more over the years, deliberate planning for how we keep the Lord's Day. Now, There are many other good and important priorities for the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. If we only rest, then we will never come out to worship. We won't serve in church, but to rest is one of the primary purposes for the Lord's Day. Because as we rest, we remind ourselves that we are made for more than work. And God's commandment to rest helps us in that, because it is a commandment to keep that we might rest on this day. It's not optional in that sense. The the important reminder there is that productivity isn't everything. Say that again. Productivity isn't everything. We are made to enjoy God's good creation. We are made to enjoy relational time with one another. And to rest, friends, is a choice. You have to choose to do it and to plan accordingly so that you are able to do it. And this is a lesson I needed to learn, and I still need to keep on learning. A number of years ago now, I was uh, gifted a sabbatical by the church in Leeds, and As I made my plans for the sabbatical, I uh, used my book allowance to get in extra books so I could do lots more reading, having been released from the responsibilities of ministry for a couple of months. But a friend of mine who I went on a walk with just before I began my sabbatical said, Matthew, you need to read this book, and you need to read it first. The book was all about this principle of Sabbath resting, And it reshaped my plans for the sabbatical, having read it. I did read some books, just not quite as many. And I practiced other things that are important in that principle of resting. Now, as we work through each of these good reasons and reasons why the Lord's Day is a gift to us, I want us to see very practical challenges. And I want to try and be really practical today in thinking about that. And here's one thing we might think about The Lord's Day, this day, can be a day full of lots of things. And there's great good in that. It can be a day which is full of serving and of hospitality and of attending worship morning and evening, and they are all very important. But here's one thing we could do. Why not try to make the pace of this day different to other days? Set a different rhythm today. Take longer over breakfast. Have an extended time of Bible reading. Leave 10 minutes earlier so that you don't have to rush to get to church and go through the stress of trying to find a parking space. Have longer for your lunch. Walk at a slower pace Change the rhythm of the day so that you get into that pattern of resting. It means you can rest. But there's a second reason why the Lord's Day is a great gift from the Lord. Not just that it means we are commanded to and therefore free to rest, but secondly, it means that others can rest. And here we look again at verse 12, where alongside the command to rest ourselves, we are told that we are to not work so that our ox and our donkey and the slave born in our household and the foreigner living among us might be refreshed. So we are to not work and to rest so that others can rest as well. Now, now we live in days, don't we, when uh, resting has become a consumer good so that we think it can only be achieved when others enable us to rest, because they provide some form of entertainment in some way. And that is a good thing for us to pursue other days in the week, and we can rest in some of those other days through the week. But our Sunday resting, the Lord is telling us here, is to be a different kind of resting. It is to be a kind of resting that will enable others not to work. Now, I find swimming very restful and relaxing. But that means others working to open the swimming pool. So I don't do that on a Sunday. Now, now we know that some people need to work, and Scripture recognizes that, that there is work that is necessary and a work of mercy. So, for example, if you're a midwife, then you can't say that the babies can only be born on six days and not on the seventh day. It is a work of necessity and a work of mercy that you would be available and working as a midwife on that day. But for other things that are not works of necessity and mercy, we should avoid asking others to work for us. And that principle is very clear in verse 12. Our ox, our donkey, the slave, the foreigner living among us we are to enable them to rest and to be refreshed. End of verse 12. Now, as, perhaps as you hear this, maybe you're thinking what any, many might think, which is this is what's known as a collective action problem, Matthew. You know, it only works if everyone is going to do this. So if everyone else isn't going to rest today, then how am I helping others? Well, let's say a few things here. First of all, the only way that ever changes is if we start making personal choices. Because the wider culture is a function of individual people's choices. That's the first thing. But then secondly, we might say, but our individual actions may not make a difference. But friends, that's not the point, ultimately, if this is an issue of Christian obedience, The fourth commandment explicitly states this very principle. Exodus 20 in verse 10 says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, the fourth commandment. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor the foreigner residing in your town. So you have that same principle that we are to rest and others are to rest as well. And practicing the Lord's Day and keeping the day in this way protects against the exploitation of the vulnerable. Because they could be forced by their employers to work because they have no choice. They need a job, and the job includes working on a Sunday, and they don't have a choice. But friends, if everyone was resting, if we were honoring the Lord's Day as a nation and keeping that... Such that ordinary work, that which is not essential or a work of mercy, is paused, people would not be forced to work, would they? How much better, how much better would our national physical and mental health be if more people practiced this? So here's another practical challenge. As we think about enabling others to rest, What practical changes could we make to help others to rest? The supermarket is open and staffed and people are asked to work because people are there shopping and as a business case to keep it open. TV sport needs an audience to be viable. Amazon delivery drivers are working on Sundays because people select Sunday as their delivery day. Now, friends, we shouldn't be like the Pharisees, where you take this to a legalistic extreme. I understand that, but I do wonder, if we're honest about our hearts, whether our danger is in that direction or perhaps in another direction. Take practical steps to help others To rest. The Lord's Day is a blessing so that others may rest. But then, thirdly, we're going to see not only is the Lord's Day a blessing so that you may rest, not only is it a blessing so that others may rest, thirdly, let's see the Lord's Day is a blessing because it builds your faith. When we work, sorry, when we do not work and rest on the Lord's Day, we are learning to trust that God will provide, even though we are not working. And it takes faith to not work every hour of the day, and to not give ourselves to work in this day. For the self-employed, what do they have to do? Well, they they have to. We have to trust God, even though we don't know when the next call will come for the next job that's going to keep us going for students we have to trust God even though we have exams in the week to come in our homes with with housework we have to trust God even though we know that the ironing pile always keeps on growing and where are we going to find the time to do it otherwise it is an act of faith to stop working and that does our souls good because it reminds us that ultimately God provides for us. Ultimately, he is our provider God, and we are not the ones who sustain our lives in that sense. Now, where do we see that in the passage? We see that in verse 10 and 11, in the principle that's being practiced there as it relates to the fallow year of the land. So the, what's being said there is that the, those who own uh, land, uh, fields, sorry, Um, vineyards and olive groves, they are to um, sow and harvest in those uh, fields, olive groves and vineyards for six years. But then on the seventh year, they are to leave the land unplowed, they're not to sow and they're not to harvest. And it requires faith that God will provide for your needs through six years of work And you won't need the harvest on the seventh year. In fact, what it means is you have to trust God that that sixth year is going to be sufficient to carry you through to the eighth year, if you think about it. Because if you can't sow or harvest in the seventh year at all, the food that you gather at the end of the sixth year needs to take you right through to the end of the eighth year. And in a culture... Uh, where uh, famine and drought was a real thing. That was a real act of faith. And in a similar way, for us, not in the six years plus one year pattern, but in the principle of working for six days and resting in the seventh, we are doing the same thing. We are building our faith, trusting that God will provide So it's good for us in our souls and our trust in God to practice planned rest, even when there is always more to do. Because as we trust God and he continues to provide for us, that strengthens the muscles of our faith. Now, hear me carefully here. I want to say something careful. It's important to get this balance. We do not believe in a prosperity gospel where everything always goes well for us if we are trusting God and obeying him. The scriptures do not make that promise that everything will always go well in your life if you're a Christian. Sometimes God sends suffering and trials And he does that to build our faith as well. So we should never presume upon God's blessing or make God's blessing the only motivation for obedience. But, but in general, God blesses his people as we obey him. He wants to build our faith, and he often acts in ways that build our trust. And so he encourages our obedience through blessing at times. Trusting God, seeing him provide, builds the muscles of our faith. If you know anything about Eric Little's story, I didn't tell you everything. Because whilst he didn't run in the 100, he did run in the 400 metres. And before he went out to run, run in the 400 metre final, he was handed a piece of paper by one of the support staff for the Great Britain team. It read as follows. In the old book it says, He that honours me, I will honour, wishing you the best success always. Eric Liddell won the gold medal in the 400 metres. Shouldn't presume on it? Not at all. Shouldn't say that would always be the case? Not at all. But God delights to encourage our obedience. God delights to build our faith by blessing us as we obey him and trust him. Honoring the Lord's Day, seeing it as a gift from God. It is a gift because it builds our faith. That's the third thing. Now, fourthly, we see that the Lord's Day is a good gift because it creates the opportunity for works of mercy. It creates the opportunity for works of mercy. And here, we're going to look at verse 11, where we see there that in that principle of uh, sowing and harvesting and working land for six years and not doing that on the seventh year, the purpose there was not to give the land a rest, but rather so that the poor and the animals might be able to get food from it. So, So those who didn't own land would benefit from the land because they were practicing this Sabbath year principle and how they functioned. So you might say, therefore, that that seventh year, that Sabbath year, was a planned work of mercy. It created the opportunity for a work of mercy. Now, we are not required to do the same with our fields today. We'd be free to do that, but God's word does not command us to do that. And the reason for that is that was a part of the civil law, and it related to Israel. But there are principles, and we've seen this as we go through, of general equity that we can learn from this. And we can apply those to how we use the Lord's Day. Because honoring the Lord's Day creates an opportunity for works of mercy. It creates space in our week so that we can plan to do works of mercy. So we can be hospitable, particularly to a visitor or or those who have little. We are in need of more people as a church to join what's called our general hospitality rota. That's the rota James was speaking of, of a, a family or a household who say we're going to have food ready if anyone would like to come on a Sunday, and we need more help for that. Please speak to the stewards James or I afterwards, and we can tell you how you can help with that. Another thing we might do practically is there's a notice in the bulletin. It's been there for a few weeks because we've been approached by Friends International to ask if anyone would be able to host an international student for a meal in December. We could do that and host international students, particularly when the other students have gone and it's quiet and lonely on campus. James reminded about this and he preached through the fourth commandment for us and, and made the point that, that honoring the Lord's Day gives us time to visit those who are unable to come to church and indeed to do good to all people. It creates an opportunity for works of mercy. Now in a moment, we're going to move on to the fifth point. But before we do that, I want to address a common question that many people have. And here we're going to take a little detour, but we are going to get back to track. Don't worry, I know the route back to the fifth point. Why do we meet on Sundays and not Saturdays? Why is this day, Sunday, described as the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath as the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith describes it, uses both words as it relates to this day? Why do we do that? Well, let's think about a few things. Why is that the case? Well, the first thing we need to recognize is the Ten Commandments and therefore the Fourth Commandment, does not include a command to keep a Saturday or Sunday, but rather the commandment is to remember the Sabbath day by following a pattern of working for six days and then keeping and resting on the seventh. Now, it's clear that in the Ten Commandments and in the passage we've looked at here, it is assumed that there is one day that everyone will be keeping as a Sabbath together. But the day is not explicitly stated as Saturday or Sunday. Now, we know from the Old Testament, the Jews clearly kept one day altogether. They recognized that it needed to be a day that everyone kept. And so they followed perhaps a pattern that was established there from the very creation, um, that for the time they were in Egypt, they weren't able to keep, but then they went back to keeping, having come out of captivity. But the point I'm making here is that in the fourth commandment, there is the possibility of the day changing. But only if God decides to do that. So we don't get to change the day. But God can. Now, as the Lord teaches progressively through the scriptures about the motivation, the reason for the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. We see a development of the reasons for that. We see that in Exodus 20, we're pointed back to God's creation pattern. In Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments are restated, the the reason given is to to remember the rescue from Egypt, and then in, and then here in Exodus 23 and, and some other passages, the reason is to rest. So there is a development of the reasons for. The keeping of this day. And as we come to the New Testament, we find that the Lord God changes the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday. He's entitled to do that. That is not a change to the fourth commandment. And it's not surprising that would be the case because there's a need to break from the Mosaic covenant and to create a clear distinction. And so, the Jews having kept the Saturday, then there is a move because there is a need to create a distinction from the Mosaic Covenant. But remember what we said about the development of the reasons. All of those reasons remain valid for us as believers, but we have another reason for the change of day. We have another reason, sorry, that explains why the day changes, which is Christ's resurrection from the dead, which happened on the first day of the week, the Sunday. That was the world-changing event that Jesus was raised and is alive and is enthroned in victory on that day. It's also so appropriate because the Lord's Day is the church's birthday. Pentecost happened on Sunday. The Holy Spirit was given on Sunday. And so what we find is, we look at the New Testament, we find that this practice of keeping Sunday as the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath is practiced by the first Christians and the early church with virtually no variation. We read in Acts chapter 20 verse 7 check it later that the church met for worship on the Lord's day. We read in 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2 that they were to collect offerings in their meetings on the Lord's day. And then in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10 John was giving himself to personal worship because he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos and he could say On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. So, keeping Sunday as the Christian Sabbath was not the invention of Constantine, but rather the practice of the church from its birth and then through onwards. And so, because Christ was raised from the dead on this day, this day becomes the day of great rejoicing and celebration for Christians. This day is meant to be a foretaste of heaven where we enjoy worship with other brothers and sisters and fellowship with other members of Christ's body, his family. So friends, we are to see this day as a positive thing. We are to see this day as a day of great blessing. I was struck this week in reading Psalm 118. I'm going to read it at the start of the service this evening, but Psalm 118, particularly in the ESV and beyond the screens, if you want to follow along, reads as follows. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, what is that a reference to in Verse 22. The stone, the builders' reject, has become the cornerstone. That's a reference to Christ being enthroned as king in his resurrection. On this day, Christ was made king. He was enthroned through his death and resurrection. So on this day, he becomes the cornerstone. And it is our Lord God who has done this. And it is, is it not, the most wonderful thing in all of history, the most marvelous thing that anyone could do, that Jesus Christ is alive. And if you're not convinced of that, would you come this evening? And James will explain more about why the resurrection is so amazing. And so on this day, the Lord's Day, it becomes a day of great celebration. Why? Because this is the day the Lord has made. And so we rejoice and are glad in this day because this is the day God has made through Christ's resurrection from the dead. Which brings us, friends, to one fifth and final thing about why this day is such a blessing. Because it is a day for feasting. In our reading in verses 17 through or well, right down, I think, to verse 19, we have a description of three annual feasts for Israel to keep. And beyond them, some of the regulations that related to, or largely regulations that related to those festivals. Now, now we don't keep those festivals today as Christians We're not commanded to do that. They're fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But each of those three festivals is wonderfully pointing forward to Christ. So as we look at them, we are reminded of the work of our Savior. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is mentioned there in verse 15... What does that remember? Well, for the Israelites, it remembered their rescue from Egypt, of how they didn't have time to to bake proper loaves, and so they made them without leaven so they could leave swiftly. And what does that remind us of as Christians? Well, it reminds us that our God has rescued us from sin and death through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Israel were taken up from Egypt to be free, we have been released and made free from our sin. And then we have the Feast of the Harvest, celebrated when the first fruits of the harvest came. And in seeing those first fruits, what do you know? You know that the rest of the harvest is coming because the first parts have, have come, those first buds have come upon the grain. Now, what does that remind us? Well, it reminds us that Christ is the first fruits in his resurrection. He was the first to be raised so that then we can be sure that all will be raised. And just like seeing the first of the harvest gave hope the whole harvest was going to come, it reminds us that just as we see that Christ has been raised, we know that we will be raised as well. And then you have the third festival, the Feast of Ingathering, which celebrated the end of the harvest, remembering the fullness of God's provision. And in a similar way, we can rejoice in the fullness of God's good provision, particularly in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us spiritual bread to eat and spiritual water to drink. And it is so significant, friends, to remember that on the occasion of that very festival, the festival in gathering, Jesus said these words, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow up within them. All of those festivals point to the work of Jesus Christ. And God does not command us to follow an annual rhythm of religious festivals. But instead, he gives us a weekly rhythm where we get to celebrate an even greater feast day every day. So here's a final practical challenge, friends. Make the Lord's Day, make this day a day of feasting. Now we can reflect that, we can do that physically. We should appropriately feast today. Whatever that means in different circumstances. Seek to make today particularly special in your home. We used to do our family shop on a Monday. And that meant that when you got to Sunday, the provisions were limited. And so we shifted it. We said, let's not shop on a Monday. Let's shop on a Thursday or a Friday so there is always enough In the fridge for Sunday, and crucially, the cream has not run out because Sunday needs to be a day for feasting. Let's feast physically, but also let's feast spiritually, friends, as we sing the words of Christ and we speak of the words of Christ to one another, we feast upon Christ in our hearts. As we hear God's word read to us and preached to us, we feed on the living word of God, which is essential spiritual food. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we look again to Christ by faith and we have our faith built as we remember all that he has done. If you can come this evening, please come to the Lord's Supper. And as we enjoy the blessing of fellowship with each other this day, we feast spiritually. What a gift God has given us in this day, the Lord's Day. Let us receive it as a blessing from our good God. Let us keep it because we love and delight to do God's will. And let us keep it joyfully and gladly. Amen.